what's splashing welcome to season five episode 10 of siren sundays with me your host lashanti the siren this show is focused on speaking with researchers scientists and practitioners of environmental science and all things conservation you are now tuning into our conservation conversation and today's guest is dr krista sherman welcome to the show thanks lashanti awesome so we'll jump right in can you let us know who you are where you work and what you do Sure. Um, so I'm Krista Sherman. I'm a senior scientist. I work for the Perry Institute for Marine Science, um, and I'm responsible for our fisheries research and conservation program. So can you just give us a brief background about your educational experience or even just some of the things that might have happened in your life along your journey to make you want to get into marine science? Yeah, um, well, I think everyone's kind of path is a little bit different. Um, it's something that I knew I wanted to do since I was a kid. Um, so I kind of followed the traditional path, um, doing a lot of science in school, and I was really um, attracted to that always. Uh, so I have a bachelor's of science in marine science, a master's of research in ocean science, uh, and my PhD is in biological sciences. Um, and for each of those, uh, at least the last two, the graduate level degrees focusing on an issue that was important to the Bahamas, uh, so for my master's, it was lionfish, um, and then for my PhD, it was Nassar grouper, which is a, lot, a lot of people kind of know that. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, you definitely are the Dr. Nassar grouper. <laughs> what made you decide to, to study the Nassar grouper when you went into your PhD? Yeah, so I initially started doing grouper work along with uh, Dr. Craig Dahlgren when I was working at BNT back in the day, um, along with Lindy Knowles. Um, and we were monitoring some of the spawning aggregation sites around Long Island. And some of those have been sites that have been monitored previously. And from that work, what we were discovering is that a lot of those aggregations uh, were not doing really well. Uh, so there was a need to kind of assess what was happening, not just there, um, but across the Bahamas. And that kind of inspired uh, a need to kind of get together with all the stakeholders. And uh, we talked about what some of the priority research needs were for the country um, and sort of worked on a plan to kind of assess them to make sure that we had uh, a fishery uh, long term um, and healthy grouper populations. But there were some research gaps that were identified and that kind of informed uh, my the development of my PhD research proposal and what I decided uh, to do um, for that work. So. And do you have you seen any changes um, in maybe policy or behaviors of people in the Bahamas since starting your work to now? Um, I think there have been some small improvements. There's always room for more improvements, um, especially when it comes to compliance with our fishery regulations. Um, when we first started doing uh, those assessments, there were a lot of boats out, a lot of fishing happening at the spawning aggregation sites. Um, that still happens. Um, the numbers of boats and traps and things, um, depending on some locations, aren't as many uh, as there were back then, but it's still something um, that persists. Um, we also know there's illegal fishing happening happening um, by foreigners that come into the Bahamas, especially in the Southern Bahamas. The fishermen talk about that a lot. Um, so that's a problem. Um, but in country, there's still a demand, obviously. So that's why people are still fishing. 
uh, because people still want Nassau Grouper. Um, so I think there's an opportunity there to kind of work through some of those issues and try to try and make people understand why we need um, to protect those species in particular um, and the actions that they do do make a difference. So, yeah, that's awesome. So I know you have some slides for us to give us a little bit more details about the type of research you do, because I know you tag fish. And a lot of times when I tell people, oh, you know, Dr. Krista Sherman, she tags fish. They're like, how does it stay on? Like, what do you mean she's tagging yeah. fish? So can you talk to us a bit about that and maybe even just show us some of the work that you do in the field? Sure. Um, so I do a couple different types of things, depending on what the research objectives are. Um, and some of that involves tagging fish. So they're internal tags where we surgically implant transmitters. I'll actually show one to you um, into the cavity of a fish that's sedated. Obviously, you want to do that with a fish that's not sedated. Um, and then uh, use absorbable sutures to sew them up, let them recover, and then take them back down. Um, so this is one type of tag. And there are receivers that we have placed underwater that actually record the pings that are emitted from these tags that have a special ID code. So we know that that responds to the specific fish. So we get information on the date um, and uh, the, the time of when that uh, record occurs. Um, and then we also know the depth of where those receivers are placed. Um, so this helps us to track movement patterns of fish essentially from their home reefs to their spawning aggregation sites and back, which is pretty cool because uh, we've been able to get information on the timing of when spawning occurs, um, swimming speeds to and from aggregation sites, for example. Uh, for some of the special types of tags that we use, you can also get additional information um, as well. Um, so it's been pretty cool. Uh, and then there are also these external tags. These are called Floy tags. Um, that we use. And these also have uh, a unique uh, number that we um, record as well. Um, and we just use this kind of applicator to put it in right below the dorsal fin and it comes out like this. So we have an external tag. Um, so if the fish is caught by a fisherman, they can call the number on the tag and, and let us know uh, where they caught the fish and when and, and return the transmitter if it happens to have a transmitter inside. We don't do the surgeries for fish that are below a certain size um, because based on the work that we've done for a number of years that we know uh, the fish are at least 54 centimeters or bigger before they're migrating to spawn for the first time. So uh, generally speaking, like 52 centimeters is our cutoff for, for inserting these transmitters. But um, I also do, I'll show you a slide, um, additional uh, work not revolve around tracking movement patterns of fish. Um, so some of the other things that uh, I have done um, include uh, taking fin clip samples from a fish and using that information to get uh, data on their genetic health because I can extract DNA, which I'm doing in the image there in the lab um, back in England, um, and look at population structure and how they're connected and the overall genetic health of these animals. We can measure fish, uh, two different length measurements, uh, standard length to the end of the caudal peduncle. It's kind of fun to say, um, but it's that area right towards the, the base of the body and where the tail meets so right at the end of that black saddle, uh, which helps to kind of distinguish Nassau grouper from other groupers. Um, and then we also take a total length measurement from 
uh, the, the snout to the, all the way to the end of the caudal or the tail fin. Um, so these are some of the things that we do uh, in addition to um, monitoring the actual spawning aggregation sites. Wow. Can you tell us about this coloration change? I know a lot of people actually will see this and say, but those, only some of those are Nassau grouper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll stop playing the video because the sound's on, or let me just turn this off and keep playing it. But yeah, so Nassau grouper have a few different colorations that they go through. Sometimes it's associated with territorial behavior because um, they have really uh, exhibit strong kind of site fidelity and can be territorial about their space on a reef. Um, wow. They're not a fish like um, if you've been you've been snorkeling and diving, but yeah. you go out and you see like snappers and um, grunts that are in huge schools. You don't usually see groupers doing the same thing, um, right. and that's because they are quite territorial. So if they encounter another grouper that's in their space, these color changes can happen. But it's really typical around the the breeding season. Um, when the fish are spawning. So there are three different um, colorations that happen. So this bicolor phase where it's kind of dark on the top and white on the bottom, uh, kind of uniquely dark like here. Um, and then there's also white belly um, phase. So these are typical uh, for grouper. And when you see more fish kind of shift and transition into these um, color spawning phases, it's more indicative that they're really ready to, to spawn and spawning is likely to happen. So it's pretty cool. So is that the, the territorial behavior and these color changes, is that male and female or do you find that the males are more territorial? It's male and female and you can be looking at a fish and see them transition in and out of different color phases. So it's pretty cool. Oh wow, because I know that people always say um, groupers are such quote unquote dumb fish, right? And and I kind of get what they're saying because I know I've been snorkeling or no, it was a dive. And you know, the grouper just came out of its hole and just was kind of just floating there, just kind of looking at me. So would you say that's because they're being territorial or do they just want me to catch them? You know, like, is, that's a, I mean, they're, you know, I know this is gonna sound sad, but I don't think they're necessarily the brightest fish in the world sometimes because you see them doing things, you're like, what are you doing? Like we take fish down to release them out of a net and they swim back in, it's just like, you're not helping yourself right now. Um, but yeah, they're really curious. Um, and so for reef uh, fish species, people find them really charismatic and they will uh, approach, generally speaking, especially if it's an area where there's not a lot of fishing happening, um, they can get pretty close um, to you. And some people have even been able to touch them and, and things like that. Not that I would recommend doing that um, with fish, but they can be really curious. Um, but from a, an ecological sort of evolutionary perspective, like their reproductive strategy makes sense because they are territorial and they're not naturally found in schools. So it makes sense that they would migrate to spawn where they are in groups with a lot more fish to potentially increase their chances of reproductive success. So it makes sense from that perspective, but it also means then they're really vulnerable to being caught because it's predictable when and where um, that breeding occurs. Yeah. And so I did have a quick question as far as I know you had said you guys can track how fast they swim as well with some of the transponders. Do they swim faster when they're on their way to the spawning site? Or is that just so some of the work um, that Craig did, uh, he tracked some fish uh, from the within the Exuma Sound. Um, 
system um, and they've exhibited these really long distance migrations all the way outside of the park uh, to Long Island and to the southern end of Long Island. So really long distance to spawn. Um, but what he also found was that inexperienced fish or the younger fish did have slower swimming speeds on the way to the spawning site and they would generally speaking follow more experienced fish but on the way back everyone kind of knew what they were doing and kind of were swimming more or less at the same speed um, so there's differences in at least from that particular study um, in swimming speeds between experienced and inexperienced spawners Oh, that's so cute. Little young yeah. guys following the old guys. Yep. <laughs> Learning the ropes, basically. Right. That's, that is cool. And I, I wonder um, if you could maybe tell us a bit about the, the science behind the closed season, because I know a lot of Bahamians I've heard, and I'm sure you might have heard it as well, they say, well, we still see them spawning like outside of the closed season, or well, they're still there. They're already in the groupings, and the closed season is too long or it's too short. Like, what was the original science behind deciding the closed season? Yeah, so the reproductive window or the period where they breed, that's what I mean when I say that, for Nassau grouper is uh, November to March here in the Bahamas. It's different in different parts of the region. Um, and the timing of when that happens is also different and tied to the, the lunar cycle. In the Bahamas, it tends to happen around the full moon, within a week of the full moon. Um, some places it's before, some places it's after, some places it's between the new and the full moon. But essentially this, the reason behind the closed season was to give the fish a bit of a break um, when they are breeding to allow them to breed. And because it's so easy to over harvest them during that period, because you have huge numbers of grouper gathered within a really confined area for a discrete period of time to breed. So it's really easy if a lot of people are throwing traps down to, to decimate numbers at a spawning aggregation site. And that has happened, not just here in the Bahamas, but in other parts of the region. Um, and it's one of the reasons why they're critically uh, endangered. The populations just can't sustain that level of fishing um, long-term. Right. Um, what we know from, from the tracking work is that fish will make um, migrations in smaller groups to these spawning aggregation sites. So I suspect sometimes what people are seeing when they say that fish are aggregating outside of the spawning aggregations is the, the groupings them getting together. And then what they do is they migrate, they move from their home reefs out to the shelf edge, and then they move in groups down to the spawning site that they choose. Um, so there's some evidence for site fidelity that some fish prefer specific sites. So that may mean that they move past one spawning site to get to another one. Um, and the reason why they do this, we're still trying to, to figure that out. But it's really interesting uh, reproductive strategy and it makes sense. Um, and as I mentioned before, because they're solitary. Um, and the other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that for a spawning aggregation to be a spawning aggregation, you actually have to have densities of fish there that are four times greater than they would be at any other period. So there are a couple of things that we use uh, to kind of define what a spawning aggregation is, in addition to actually seeing fish in those spawning colorations, to witnessing spawning rushes and events, the release of gametes, the eggs and sperm in the water column and, mm -hmm. and all that jazz. But um, yeah, so that's the science behind the closed season here. So the, 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 air, the months where we have seen peak spawning in the Bahamas so far 
coincide with when our closed season is. So that's the reasoning behind the closed season. And I know you had mentioned that whole aspect of site fidelity, and I'm sure some sites, some fishermen also have site fidelity, and they are going to the exact same spots. And I know I've heard that there are, are sites that used to be spawning aggregations, but obviously grouper don't go there anymore. Is that because the groupers that would go there have all been fished out? Or is it that some of them realize that, oh, when we go here, a lot of us die, so we're going to switch sites? Like, what? What is the reason for that? And once these spawning aggregation sites are lost, do fish ever, do they ever go back to them? That's a good question, Sarah. Um, I'll answer <laughs> the last one first, which is, is it's encouraging for us too. And that is collapsed aggregation sites can recover without fishing pressure, um, assuming that you have healthy populations of Nassau grouper elsewhere that could potentially come back there because there's evidence for that in the Caribbean. So that's encouraging. Nice. What we have seen in the Bahamas, so some of our, for example, there was an aggregation, the first one that was described for the Bahamas off Cat Key in Bimini, where in the 70s, they estimated between 30,000 to 100,000 grouper. That no longer forms, it still no longer forms. And that's because it's been fished to the point where it cannot, like it hasn't recovered. And densities of grouper in that area are really low recruitment of new grouper into that area is really low and so that's the reason why that aggregation has not recovered and when i say recruitment i mean new fish coming in settling and growing to become mature adults i think what some people don't know is that survival rate is really low for nasa grouper in the early life stages so even though you have millions of eggs and sperm being released um, less than one percent of them survive that process to become uh, a mature adult. Um, and that takes a while. And the Bahamas fish aren't migrating to spawn for the first time until they're seven years old. Um, oh, so that wow. is a while. Um, they can reach maturity before that. And that's what the minimum size limit that we have is based on a fish that's four years old, but they're not actually going to do the do until three years after that. So, wow. yeah. So would you say, and obviously I, I'm not going to get political at all with this, but would you say a good recommendation for fishermen or even like a policy change would be to to up that size? Or is it just that hard to, to determine like if this fish is actually four or seven? Because generally, obviously, fish grow at different rates as individuals. They do, um, but at growth rates for NASA grouper are pretty well established. And one of the things that we were able to do or have been able to do for a number of years through the, the long-term projects that we had going on was collect data on length and weight of all the fish that we tagged or that I uh, collected fin clips from from genetics. Um, and so we know what that average weight and length is for the majority of the population, 77% uh, of them um, nice. to be exact, um, before they do that. And that happens to be an adult that's 54 centimeters or bigger um, or nine pounds um, the fish that's around nine pounds. So there are policy recommendations to revise the minimum size limit, but to also shift to a length-based measurement because that's easier to facilitate um, compliance with than a weight-based measurement because a lot of people don't keep um, scales to weigh fish on their boats. Um, and then there'll be also issues if the fish is gutted before it's weighed uh, in terms of accuracy. But you can easily train people to, to, to collect a correct uh, length measurement for um, a NASA grouper. Um, so 
those recommendations, that's one of the recommendations that has come out of the research and um, been shared um, with the Department of Marine Resources. Um, and they have sought um, input from local stakeholders, including fishers, about that. Um, and we'll see what, what the final verdict is. I think that's also good. I guess even just if it isn't done anytime soon, it's good for consumers to know because I think 54 centimeters is about like 20 something inches. But yeah, it's about yeah. 21, 20, 21 and a half, 22 inches. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would even say just to anyone watching, if you are someone that buys NASA group, mm -hmm. try to only buy the ones that are about that length, because obviously once that demand goes down for the smaller size ones, then you know, checks and balances. But Kelly just made an interesting point in the comments. So she says, wow, if my math is mathing, that's less than 10,000 in a 1 million grouper surviving to maturity. And so is her math, <laughs> is her math mathing? <laughs> Your math mathing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really low. Um, the survival rate's really low. It's really high. Um, some of that's due to natural mortality, predation in the larval stage. Um, some of that's due to fertilization not necessarily being successful um so you know we need to give them as many opportunities as they can to succeed and one of the things that we can do is not eating fish before they've had a chance to to breed other things that we can do is making sure the critical habitats that they need throughout their life cycle because that changes are protected um so nursery areas for example that often experience a lot of fragmentation and loss because of coastal development or maybe pollution that those are protected. Uh, reefs that are really important for adults, that they're in the best condition that they can possibly be. And we know that reefs are experiencing a range of stressors right now, um, yeah. which we don't need to, to go into, but that's a whole other issue that's gonna be problematic for a lot of reef associated species. Um, in addition to reducing the pressure on the spawning aggregations themselves. So these are all things um, that we can do, um, as well as revising or, or considering um, protecting specific spawning aggregation sites that are really healthy. Um, that's something that's been done in places like the Cayman Islands, and they have seen their populations recover. Um, but there's good compliance, there's good enforcement, there, um, there's a lot of money that's devoted toward research and education, and that's helped um, them tremendously. Um, it helps that they have fewer sites to manage. We have so many, and that makes our work a lot more challenging, but that's why we need everyone to do what they can um, to get involved. So, and I know um, I've heard the whole saying, you know, we have that, the Bahamian terminology, the big breeders. Um, and I oftentimes see people fishermen or fisher folk or people who just do it for fun, catch these large grouper and keep them, kill them, eat them. Would you say that it is a good um, kind of thing to practice to not maybe catch these bigger grouper because they are indeed big breeders? Yeah. So another recommendation um, from the work is to consider having a maximum size limit. And as you say, the reason behind that is because boffs, the big old fat fecund fishes, as we call them, <laughs> are really important. You know, they're really, the reproductive output, the quality of eggs and sperm is really different from a fish that's smaller in size. So they're able to, to for the same 
release more eggs and sperm um, than a fish that's smaller in size and potentially increase the likelihood that we'll have uh, more fish out there that survived that, that process. And so there's there's a rationale behind it and it's something that has been recommended and hopefully it's something um, that may happen one day, but yeah. Yeah, because I remember when I was at BNT, there was, um, I think that fact sheet that you were a part of that showed the difference in a, a grouper that was, oh goodness, just I remember the, whatever the size difference was, I feel like it was only a couple inches and you get like three times more yield just by letting this, this grouper grow three inches bigger or, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I just can't remember the inches, but it's amazing how if we just give them just a little bit of inches to grow, you know, we can benefit so much more just by doing that. So what is your recommended maximum size that you would say is this is the biggest to catch and leave anything yeah. bigger alone? We have, we need more work before we can do that um, okay. and figure that out. Um, so I can't give you an exact number, but it's something that we would like to see. Yeah. Awesome. And so I do have a question and, and these are just going to be a couple of just fun facts about the mm -hmm. Nassau grouper and you can share some, but what, what is, what is the typical diet of a Nassau grouper? Are they herbivores? Are they carnivores? Are they omnivores? They, uh, they're carnivorous. Um, their diet shifts, though, as they age and grow. Um, so obviously, juvenile plankton stages, juveniles are going to be eating things that are floating in the plankton, uh, zooplankton and other things. Um, as they settle and recruit, it's more crustacean-based diet, so shrimps, crabs, that kind of thing. But as they transition and become bigger adults, um, tend to have more of a piscivorous-based diet, so mostly fish. Um, as a range of fish, there's like a whole massive table I can share with you of all the things <laughs> they eat. But I it's really that. important. One of the things that they do help to, to control, I think people aren't aware of, for example, are damselfish. Um, they're a little territorial, colorful yeah. uh, species on the reef. And some of them uh, like to take nibbles out of coral and, and tend their gardens, algal gardens on corals. But a lot of them, sometimes we, what we're seeing now with stony coral tissue loss disease, sometimes uh, species like damselfish um, and butterfly fish, other colorful little reef fish, mm -hmm. ornamentals, uh, are sometimes associated um, with feeding around disease margins of um, corals infected with stony coral tissue loss disease. Um, so they could be a natural um, sort of vector for spreading the disease. So having healthy populations of grouper are also important for helping to control abundances of other fish on the reef that have other effects. So it's it's all about a balance uh, with ecosystems and each species has a role and NASA grouper are one of the most important uh, predators, mesopredators on reefs um, that do that. So um, yeah, they're really important. See, and I ask that because, well, one for the audience, but I always was fascinated by the way that NASA grouper eat because they don't, they don't just, you know, dart out, right? Like I think they use a particular, is it positive or negative pressure? I don't know, positive or negative pressure, but they're like, yep. I'm they just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so can you, can you tell us how they, how they go and eat these fish? Like they just snap at them or corral yeah. them in a corner, <laughs> just a quick, because I even just when I saw that one on the reef that day, it was just kind of just floating there. And I loved how it had his peck fins just kind of moving, you know, and they just also seem very lazy. So I just don't imagine that they chase their food down. <laughs> yeah, they're not. 
They, they're, yeah, they're usually not moving around quickly, but don't let them fool you. <laughs> they can move around pretty quickly, having tried to catch several underwater um, if they want to. Um, but yeah, they, they're, they're decent hunters and they're good at consuming their, their prey, but it's not, they're not stealthy or, you know, like barracudas or anything like that. Right. Yeah. I know that there was a point in time and I actually didn't know that you studied lion fishing your masters, but I remember when we were having that big lionfish boom, I think we were trying to feed lionfish to Nassau grouper, correct? Has yeah, there been some people with were, that or? Um, I don't think it's something that's been so much encouraged here. It's something, the reason for it is there was a paper that was published back then that found lionfish in the stomach contents of uh, a grouper. Um, I don't know that that's something, it's not something that I've seen them do naturally on um, a reef, like hunting like lionfish or something, but I think um, it is something they, they will feed, eat one if it's presented to them or it's dead or whatever. Yeah. Awesome. And do you have any other sort of fun facts about the Nassau grouper before I move on to the next question? Oh, so many. Well, we already talked about their fantastic coloration displays that happens in just a couple of seconds. I think that's pretty cool. Um, other fun facts about grouper. Oh, God. Yeah, but I think we've talked about uh, a lot of it. It's all stemming. I think the most interesting things for NASA grouper are all around their reproductive strategy. So, you know, Definitely. they are an example of a transient spawner. So fish that we also have resident spawners like parrotfish um, that can reproduce daily over longer periods of time and they don't migrate far from their home reefs. Um, but NASA grouper and other groupers and some snappers are an example of transient spawners. Um, so they actually migrate really long distances. Um, we're talking over a hundred miles um, to some of these spawning sites um, to breed. So I think that's pretty impressive too um, for, for them, yeah. Right. And I know you had mentioned earlier that the Nassau grouper is currently critically endangered. Can you talk about what that status means and what that can mean for Bahamians with Nassau grouper? Yeah. So critically endangered means that the species is facing globally uh, a high risk of becoming extinct. Um, so everywhere where the species currently occurs, uh, at a, you know, at the regional level, we've been working on recommendations to kind of reduce pressures and threats for Nassau grouper and, and trying to do what we can to help them recover either through policy changes, but also through education outreach awareness as well. Um, so right now, um, ongoing, there's a lot of work behind the scenes for a regional public engagement campaign to kind of elevate the status of fish that have this really unique reproductive strategy, which makes them really vulnerable. But they're species that are sometimes charismatic, like Nassau grouper, but are really important to reef health, but also really important to fisheries um, and other industries like tourism, for example, uh, as well. Uh, so that's something um, that's, that's ongoing. Um, and it's something that we don't want to see. Um, Nassau grouper in the Bahamas is also one of those species that has a strong cultural identity and tie. I think it's the species an average Bahamian could identify. They may not be able to tell me what uh, 
you know, Indigo Hamlet looks like, but they can tell me what the Nassar grouper is, right? So um, we have these strong traditions here um, with food. Um, I've seen it in Junkanoo costumes and stamps and art uh, that kind of celebrate um, a part of the cultural identity of the Bahamas. So it's something that we don't want to lose. And to your knowledge, and this might be putting you on the spot a bit, um, but in just thinking of that whole theme of, you know, Nassau grouper is one of our iconic species. Just the irony of the name. Why is Nassau in the name of the Nassau grouper? Does it have anything to do with the province? <laughs> I get asked this all the time. And to be honest, I can't tell you why it's called Nassau grouper because it's not unique to Nassau. It's not right. unique to the Bahamas. Um, the Are we claiming it? <laughs> yeah, we, we're claiming it. The Bahamas, though, can brag about having the most reported numbers of spawning aggregation sites. We can't brag and say what the status of all of those spawning aggregation sites are, but we, we can brag on that. So it's really important to the overall um, uh, health in terms of the conservation status of the species that we do what we can to protect our populations of grouper here. Um, and they are, are different. Um, for from some, at least genetically speaking, from uh, some of the populations elsewhere. Awesome. So I do have a question coming in from YouTube. Jewel Thompson Benemy asks, "Hi, Dr. Krista and Lachanti. Hi, Jewel. <laughs> Loving this session on NASA grouper. I'm curious: Are there any other types of grouper that are also facing a similar decline in the Bahamas?" Great question, Jewel. I am currently in the process of analyzing data for other grouper species that we've been collecting for a number of years. So outside of collecting information during the breeding season or spawning, we also collect data on abundances and densities of fish when we're doing uh, reef assessments, for example, through agri-surveys. Um, so there are other grouper species like black grouper, tiger grouper, yellowfin, uh, where we have data for. Uh, I can't give you an answer right now on that, but we'll get back to you on that. <laughs> but yeah, we're concerned about the status of, of you know, other populations of groupers, especially those um, species that also form transient um, spawning aggregations to breed like black grouper and tiger grouper, because they would face similar threats uh, to NASA grouper um, as well. Yeah. And so would you say the biggest threat to Nassau grouper specifically is overfishing? Yes. Definitely. So it's overfishing that's happening primarily at the spawning sites during the breeding window. That's particularly troubling because yeah. to be honest, like if that wasn't happening, they don't naturally aggregate or school. So yeah, people yeah. aren't going to be catching the same amount of fish um, if they go out to a reef. It's a couple of grouper versus traps coming up full of grouper um, that happen during the, the breeding season. So we are worried about that. And also with illegal fishing that's happening for, for Nassau grouper. Um, in some instances at some of the sites where we've been monitoring, you have between uh, 20 to 40% of fish at a spawning site being caught in traps. So that's that's problematic. Yikes. Oh, well, as we are past the 30 minute mark, as we start closing up, how can viewers um, either get involved with some of your work? Like if you you know have research shows that people can get involved with or trainings, or how can they even just learn more about your work? Mm -hmm. Just follow your journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, 
um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, work for the Perry Institute for Marine Science. We have <laughs> um, social media pages that you can follow um, to learn about our work. You can visit our website to learn more about our programs um, and projects. Uh, you can follow me on social media um, for, for updates as well. Um, in the past, in terms of training and capacity building, a couple of years ago, I did a FSA training workshop for local partners to kind of get them involved um, in some of the work and to be able to assist when we're doing monitoring. Hopefully it's something that can happen again in the future. Um, we'll see. Um, but yeah, th those are opportunities to get involved specifically in, in that work. Um, and for partners that have been trained uh, in agro, when we have opportunities to get people out and assist with monitoring um, assessments for reef sites, and that, that would be another opportunity um, to contribute as well. And donate. Always donate. <laughs> Donations, donate. welcome. <laughs> donate your time, your boat. Yes, money, exactly. You know. Sometimes that's the way things happen. Uh, a lot of the research, it, it's been a struggle for us because it's been um, underfunded and uh, funding for, for this and for fisheries work is really difficult. So I'm really grateful for a lot of the support that we've had from the Shed Aquarium in the past. Um, to people that have donated uh, randomly, hey, we're going to be uh, in country, you want to use your boat, you know, that's how things happen sometimes. And uh, it would be great to be able to have opportunities like that in the future to continue. So yes, donations of any kind are welcome. Definitely. And I see we do have one more question, or I think this might be two from the same person. Are these different grouper species seen in the same numbers in the Bahamas as the Nassau grouper? And are these numbers significant enough to ever become the main type of grouper that's being fished? Um, so no, Nassau grouper is probably one of the most naturally more abundant species that occur uh, in the Bahamas, but we also do have other grouper species as well. Uh, probably next in terms of um, naturally occurring abundance would be um, uh, tiger grouper, black grouper. We also have hinds. They're smaller, uh, which people call strawberry grouper, but they're two different types. There's a rock hind and the red hind. So I'm not sure which is which. <laughs> I think we strawberry grouper. Yeah. yeah. But so those are, are quite common um, on the reefs as well as graze bees, which are even smaller, but they have the three black mm -hmm. spots right below uh, the dorsal area. Um, so those are they're quite common, but not fished. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's mainly um, black groupers, tiger groupers, um, yellowfin, yellowmouth that, that are fished. Um, there are some deeper water species that we have here, but they're not naturally abundant um, and, you know, rarely fished, more recreational fishing than commercial fishing. The commercial fishing really does target um, NASA grouper and some of the other larger groupers. I know, and as you were talking about that, I remembered, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, because I could just be way off with this. I remember hearing that in some other countries, you can actually get that same cicatera poisoning that we get from barracuda, but in other countries, you can get it from groupers. Is it the Nassau grouper, or is it just those other types of grouper that they're referring to? To be honest, any reef-associated species has the potential of having ciguatera. Okay. I think a lot of people don't don't realize that. But I, I think we just think it's the barracuda. <laughs> no, it's not just like some places it's more.
commonly found in one species. So for the Bahamas, sometimes it's barracuda, not always. So it's a risk if you decide to eat that. But any large reef fish could potentially have ciguatera because it's just an accumulation of uh, that dinoflagellate. So, yeah. yeah, groupers can have it. Large snappers can have it. So let's just leave the big fish alone, guys. You know? like <laughs> yeah, and in some cases, like the really, really big fish, like the lyre groupers are high in mercury, which is not good for you health-wise. So definitely leave those alone. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. And so we do have another question in um, from Jewel. Awesome. What has been the greatest success with the species since you've been studying them? And what is the greatest thing you would want to see to help preserve our Nassau grouper? <sighs> That's a hard <laughs> question, Jewel. <laughs> We're greatest here today. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like we accomplished a lot of the goals that were initially set out in terms of identifying some of addressing some of the research gaps there are still some but we know enough now to make informed recommendations which we have done the thing is to see those implemented um and to work on some of the so the compliance issues with all of the stakeholders is not just the fishers it's the consumers it's also the policymakers to make sure um, when it's time to be implementing policies and things um, that those are done in a timely and efficient manner um, as possible, especially when things are time sensitive. Um, so I think there's room uh, for improvement there. What I would really like to see though, um, and would be happy because I have had conversations, some good conversations with fishers over the years, um, is a continued awareness about some of the issues and willingness to respect the closed season. Um, and that's happening. I'd like to see a lot more of that. And I would like to see at, at least one day when I'm out, no fishing at a spawning site. That would make, make me very happy. That would make me happy too. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have some some final thoughts for our viewers or maybe it's kind of like a, a mantra you may have, a lesson learned that you picked up over your years of research and work? Uh, I think it's, for me, work ethic is really um, important. Um, and if you're gonna be good at anything, you have to devote time to it. Nothing happens overnight. Um, and you have to, you have to put in, you have to put in the time. No one can do that for you. you magically transport, um, knowledge into your head, um, uh, or give you the skills you need. You have to work on developing those, maintaining those. Even I do that. Um, and I'm aware when I'm getting rusty in certain things and you have to, to spend the time. So I would encourage people. Um, to do that but then just to not lose sight of why you got into whatever it is that you're doing um so you kind of keep that passion alive so i love that. it can be like, difficult <laughs> sometimes but yeah <laughs> thank you for that and i'm sure our viewers are saying thank you as well it's important to to remember why you were passionate about something because you can burn out you can burn out from something you love doing just as much as from something you don't love doing and so great point just always remember why you started and yeah, keep your yeah. skills sharp like you can't just expect to 
be good at something and then not do it for years and think you can jump right back into doing something. It's definitely yeah, you, you can get complacent. You have to stay on it. Oh, yes. So, yeah, for sure. Stay on the grind, <laughs> but don't burn out. Don't don't burn out because burnout is real. <laughs> so last question before we go. And this is one of my favorite questions to ask my guests. Who is someone in the sector, whether it be local or international, that inspires you and why? For me, to be honest, that person is Dr. Judith Lang. I met her years ago, I think 2010 or 2011, maybe. Um, and she has been working in the field of marine science conservation for her entire life. Um, she's an older uh, lady and is still diving, um, still manages to stay optimistic despite all of the changes she's seen, uh, which are probably even more drastic than the changes, uh, which are more drastic than the changes I've seen. I think the most drastic changes have happened in the last two years. Um, but just to have decades of experience and to still be optimistic and to still get up every day and continue, I'm very inspired by her and all of the effort and commitment um, that she's devoted to this field. Um, and for her to devote time to like training people like me and other people around the Caribbean, I'm very inspired by, by Judy. So yay, Judy, we need more Judys. <laughs> Maybe you'll be a Judy one day. We <laughs> yeah. already are one and you don't even realize it. There are so many people that are inspired by, by you. And, and I definitely hope to meet her one day. I always hear about Dr. Judy Lang and I'm like, when am I gonna, when am I gonna get to meet this woman? I hear she's so amazing. So I definitely, um, Thank you for sharing that. And I hope to meet her one day too. It's, mm -hmm. it's great to to see who's inspired people, who's inspired me. Because as many people know, I always talk about how amazing Krista is. So I've been so happy to have the Dr. Krista Sherman on the show. Thank you guys for all watching this episode. It's been a wonderful one. Hope to maybe get you on another episode. Maybe you can come on and talk about stony coral tissue loss disease. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's very season. depressing. That's one of the changes I've seen a lot recently. Yeah, and you know, hopefully when next season starts, we yeah. have a different a different message about the stony coral so. tissue loss disease. But if yeah. you do want to put a plug in about it now, you. Yes, for for anyone out there that's on the water, loves the water, please do what you can to prevent the spread of stony coral tissue loss disease. Disinfect your gear, um, discharge your bilge water where you are. Um, if you're on bigger boats, discharge your ballast water offshore. Um, report sightings as soon as you see something. The, the the sooner we know information, the better, so we can get out and do assessments and, and form a plan, um, especially if they're in areas like marine protected areas. Um, so please, please, please do what you can. Yeah. So if you care about our fisheries, if you care about our mm -hmm. way of life, if you care about our oceans, help us save our reefs. Definitely, if you see something, say something. Stony coral tissue loss disease is ravaging our reefs right now. And we just have to make sure that we can get out there and, and kick its butt. <laughs> yeah, we need to. We are a coastal nation, so that's our front, front line of defense, and we need to make sure it's as intact as it can possibly be. So Definitely. For us and for all of our fisheries, like the Nassau mm -hmm. Grouper. <laughs> yes, like the Nassau Grouper. So thank you so much for being on this show, and thank you to all my viewers for riding another wave with me. Hope to see you guys all in the next episode of Siren Sundays. And if you're listening to this on podcast, thank you so much for checking it out. Check us out on YouTube and on Facebook. Thanks so much for coming again, Krista. Hope to see Bye. you soon. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay. Bye.